Well, hello again. Uh, is my mic working? Okay. Well, how are we all doing today? I am getting by. <laughs> and what I want to talk to you about is Second Timothy chapter 4 and why I think it's very applicable to all of us. Now, Second Timothy is generally believed to be the last thing that the Apostle Paul wrote before his execution in Rome. And last words tend to get remembered a lot more than many of the other things people will say. Especially something like this, where, you know, he knows it might be the last thing he gets to say to Timothy. And so he's got to make his words count. Now, it's generally believed this was written around 70, sorry, 65 to 67 AD, depending on who you ask, by the Apostle Paul. Some people will tell you that Paul didn't write this. We'll get to that later. If someone's also, they generally also think that some, if it wasn't Paul who wrote it, it was written a lot later than that. I go with the idea that Paul wrote it, and again, I'll explain why in a moment. And usually it's assumed this is Paul's second imprisonment in Rome. We know he's imprisoned in Rome at the end of Acts around AD 60 or 62. There's a couple different views on that. It's usually believed that when Paul's in prison at the end of Acts, he gets released and he's free for a couple of years. Um, some people will say he went to Spain. We know from reading Romans that he had wanted to go to Spain. It's just not recorded if he made it there or not. Then, sometime around 66, according to the two imprisonments theory, he gets rearrested, and this time he doesn't get out of jail. Either one, and then there's also the, well, he never got released after the end of Acts, because again, there's just nothing written down in the Bible to tell us. There's probably going to be people who hold to both views in heaven, so you don't need to necessarily say, Thus saith the Lord on either of those two. But I felt it was worth bringing up. And so what's going on in 2 Timothy here is uh, we see he doesn't have a whole lot of stuff. He asks Timothy to bring his cloak to him. And he's not going to get out of jail. He's released into heaven. It's usually believed this is under the uh, Neronian persecution. So after the great fire of Rome, when... You know, Nero is alleged to have just stood around and played his fiddle. Nero blamed the Christians, which would result in some significant persecution of them in Rome. And so that's the background of Paul's arrest here. Now, he's writing to Timothy, who Paul calls his son in the introduction to the letter. Now, Timothy had been with Paul since at least Acts 16, verse 1, where we see him first meet him. And, of course, Timothy is also the recipient of 1 Timothy, and his name comes up in a bunch of Paul's letters. Um, 
based on a couple of clues in the text, it's believed he may have been in Ephesus at this time. And the point of 2 Timothy is, like I said, these are Paul's final instructions to Timothy. He doesn't know if Timothy's going to make it to him before he dies. We don't have any record of whether Timothy made it there or not. And what Paul's essentially going to say to Timothy is, join, in me, join with me in suffering for the gospel. It'll be in uh, 2 Timothy 1 verse 8 is where that's from. And I think you can see that theme throughout the book. Now, something with First and Second Timothy, as well as the book of Titus, is that they're usually called pastoral epistles. And it's, very, it's possible to believe that, well, they're pastoral epistles, so this is great for my elders or my pastor or missionaries or what have you, but I would challenge that view because I think all scripture is inspired by God and I think it's useful for everyone. None of you may ever give a sermon, but on the other hand, what do you think 1 Peter 2.9 means when it calls the church a kingdom of priests? And my grandpa's by no means an apostle, but he always likes to say, preach the gospel always. Use words when necessary. I don't, there's no vocational ministers in the room. I mean, I aspire to be one, but I'm still in college. But we do all have our ministries in the kingdom if we are in it. Because this ship does not have passengers. We're all part of the crew. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 27, and... We're all part of the body. Now, did God put useless parts in the body? I don't think so. And so, what I was saying about authorship is you'll have some academics questioning whether Paul wrote the letters to Timothy and Titus. I tend to believe he did, but I did want to mention that you will hear this on occasion. Most of the arguments are going to center around the fact that First and Timothy and Titus have a different writing style, different vocabulary than other Pauline writings, but that's not proof of anything. These are personal letters. His other writings are pretty much addressed to an entire church with the exception of Philemon, which is about half a page long. You probably wouldn't write a letter to your own kid using the same style as you would if you're writing a subpoena. Paul calls both Timothy and Titus a variation of son. These are personal letters. Paul's other letters tend to have something that's being argued about, especially something like either letter to the Corinthians or Galatians. Timothy's and Titus are written to Paul's own protégés. They're personal letters. Paul doesn't have to convince Timothy or Titus to believe what he's already taught them. He just has to give them a brief reminder. And so that argumentative language you'll find in a lot of Paul's other writings, well, it's just simply unnecessary. And there's a few other reasons you'll hear mostly similar to that, um, and I'd be more than happy to talk about them later, but for now, let's get into the actual letter. Now, I'm mostly preaching out of 2 Timothy 4 here, since I want to bring out the message in that chapter, but 
the rest of the book is useful as well. Just to run through it real quick, in the first chapter, Paul's going to greet Timothy, encourage him in his faith, and sort of update him on what he's got going on. In the second chapter, kind of the same thing, more encouragement, warning against false teachers and falling into sin himself. And then in the third chapter, warning about you know, the last days, what people are going to be like, that he's going to be persecuted, and more encouragement to stand strong in the faith. And now for our main text, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Again, this is where you kind of get that, well, this sounds like it's written to a pastor. Well, we'll get to that. Next bit of Bible here. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And that's Second Timothy uh, verses um, okay, 6 through 8. I want to bring up a parallel in Paul's first letter to Timothy. Fight the good fight of, faith, of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul mentions his departure here in 2 Timothy, he's not talking about getting on an airplane. In 1 Timothy He's telling Timothy to fight the good fight. And in 2 Timothy, he's telling him, my fight is over. Yours is beginning. But the end of his fight's no life lost to Paul. If we look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24, he almost talks about death like it's just an inconvenience to him. He spent his life ready for the next one. How ready are we? Now, moving on to 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 15, we get some more details here. These are easy to skim past, but they show some important details. Most of Paul's associates are either out on the mission field or have just abandoned him. Do your best to come to me quickly. 
Damas, because he's loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark, bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. He doesn't even have enough clothing. He's asking Timothy, bring this cloak to me. Depending on what exactly the scrolls are that he's mentioning, you know, it could be blank scrolls for writing letters, or it could be he doesn't even have scriptures. That could be what he's referring to as the scrolls. Now, he was a Pharisee. He would have had quite a lot of scripture memorized because that was a requirement for them. But I know I would still like something to read if I were locked up. And on top of the Romans, he's got this Alexander fellow going around causing problems. It's not entirely certain just what this Alexander was doing, but it was apparently enough for Paul to find it worthwhile to warn Timothy against him. So let's remember all of those problems real quick for the next part. Verses 16 through 18. At my first defense, no one came to my support but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, on top of everything else, everyone abandoned Paul at his first defense. But here what he's saying, I'm alone, but it doesn't matter. I have God. Everyone deserted me, but it doesn't matter. God was with me. I'm about to die, but it doesn't matter because I'll be with Jesus. And for me, you know, this, I'll read this in it. How often do I just look at my problems and forget God? I've never even been arrested. And Paul doesn't seem to know if Timothy is going to get there while he's still alive. I think maybe there's just a little bit of a gap between us and Paul here sometimes in our faith. So let's take a look at what the text has to say about improving that. So I'll need to jump back into chapter three real quick for this. It's important for what comes afterwards. Second uh, Timothy three twelve through 14. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil, evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. Interesting here. Paul says, 
everyone who really follows Jesus will be persecuted. And in addition to this place, 1 Peter 4.12 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 also say much the same thing among many, many, many other verses. Now, I'm not anticipating that we're going to see Nero-style persecution here in the States in the next century or two. But that doesn't mean Satan's asleep, and we shouldn't expect to live following Christ without Satan trying some funny business. Now, verse 14, what you have become convinced of. So what is that? And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. At the risk of sounding painfully obvious, you can't know something if you haven't ever learned it, and you can't continue what you haven't started. Paul may or may not have had written scriptures available to him when he was writing this letter, but as an ex-Pharisee, he would have memorized a huge amount of scripture. Now, we have the luxury of being deluged in Bibles of every kind. You have your NIV, your NLT, NET, etc. Any sort of style, any font size, any amount of notes, you can get the Bible you want. So, if you even want to begin the race that Paul is talking about here, start with getting to know your Bible. If you do know your Bible, keep digging in. I promise you, you will never find the bottom. This is the equipment for living the Christian life. So, having been equipped with the Word, what do we do with it? Well, moving forward back into chapter 4, we've got a nice list of applications. Unless you're planning to fill a pulpit, I would encourage you to read preach in verses 4, 1 through 5, less as giving a sermon in front of a crowd and more as just talking to someone else about God. Jesus tends to throw people at his followers. Regardless of how you look at that word, always be prepared to use the equipment God provides because correction, rebuke, and encouragement are on the list too. And we need this because the time will come when people just won't be interested in a genuine gospel. And you will need to know what that gospel is. Now I'd submit to you, if, it, if that time hadn't come when Paul was writing, it certainly has now. If you look at what passes for Christianity in a Hollywood movie, or what a televangelist will do to separate people from their money, yeah, I would say that is our time. You can't correct or rebuke someone going after a lie unless you know the truth. And you won't be able to keep yourself from going after a lie unless you know the truth. You keep your head screwed on, things will not be easy. Paul would know. If you read through Acts and his other letters, 
everything he tells Timothy to endure, everything he tells Timothy to do, is something Paul himself has already gone through. So this kind of seems like a difficult, depressing picture. What's the end point? Continuing on. Verses 6 through 8 again. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me, and for you, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And then again, I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, this is, if not the most, one of the most compelling passages in all of Scripture. Because Paul once saw the murderer, the persecutor, now redeemed, can look back and say, I fought my fight, I finished my race, I won. Paul's race was not easy. In Acts 9.16, God said about Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And suffer he did. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 29, 21 through 29, we see this. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking about as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes, minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? It's quite the list. Second Corinthians was not Paul's last letter. Presumably the list of his sufferings would have grown between when he wrote it and when he wrote Second Timothy. Just think about everything that Paul has gone through and is going through. And then let's look back at 2 Timothy 18, 4.18. To him be the glory forever and ever. After all that, you know, I feel like at least once he must have thought, Lord, isn't this enough? Haven't I suffered enough for you? 
But Paul doesn't say, and finally, you know, it's no, it's to him be the glory. And so how do we react when our circumstances go bad? I know I don't do so well a lot of the time. <laughs> Maybe you don't always either. And I would submit that perhaps the reason for this, and it definitely the case for me, is how I'm approaching the situation. Verses 17 and 18 again. The Lord stood by my side. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. How often do I just make it, I stood by my side and I will rescue me, and then wonder why it always seems like I'm losing. Paul understood that to finish the race, he had to run it in God's strength, not his own. And when he did this, nothing could stop him. Even death seems like an inconvenience to him. And I suspect if we run our own race in God's strength like this, we'll find much the same thing for ourselves. Paul could see past his own imprisonment and death to eternity. Perhaps we can see past our problems too. Now, not to just hand wave away what anyone has gone through or is going through right now. But I want to say it is far better to suffer with God on your side than to suffer alone. So I hope you can begin to see how the pastoral epistles are useful for people who aren't pastors or elders or deacons or some other kind of church leader. So let's uh, go back through a little bit of what it has to say real quick. We need to know our Bible, whether we're ministers or not. So open yours up and pray that God would open your eyes more and more to what he has to say to you in it. And we're going to have problems no matter what our part in the body of Christ is, God's strength is enough for them. It will be difficult, but it'll be worth it in the end. Remember the crown of righteousness. The world is going to be wicked, regardless of whether your paycheck has church written on it somewhere. Expect it, because it will happen. None of us are going to finish the race, or fight the good fight in our own strength. So if you're trying to do it in your own strength, and I've got a mirror held up in front of me right now for this part, stop it! And in the end, after all of this, Jesus will bring us safely into his kingdom if we follow him. Paul could say with confidence that he would receive his crown. And so can we. Let us run our own race and finish our own course. Not alone, but with God. Dear Lord, I just... Uh, come before you today to ask that we would all learn from
all of the word that you have given us. And that we would take these lessons to heart. We would live them out. That none of us would, at the finish line, be disqualified. Because we did not run the race. ask that you would give us the strength to live out each of our callings in your kingdom this week and this day. And I thank you and I praise you for all of this in Jesus' perfect, holy, and precious name. Amen.